Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Nick Haddad about his new book, The Last Butterflies, A Scientist's Quest to Save a Rare and Vanishing Creature. Nick Haddad is a professor in the Department of Integrative Biology and the W.K. Kellogg Biological Station at Michigan State University. His lab, the Haddad Lab, studies the application of ecological principles to the conservation of biodiversity, from individual rare animals to all species living within a community. The lab focuses on strategies, like use of habitat corridors, that are intended to overcome the negative effects of habitat loss and fragmentation. For the last 20 years, he has worked to identify and save from extinction some of the rarest butterflies on Earth, a quest that has taken him to both surprisingly ordinary and extraordinarily inhospitable areas, including a swampy active artillery range on a military installation in North Carolina. It has also led to some surprising conclusions about the best ways to protect these increasingly endangered butterflies. Nick Haddad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Love talking about butterflies. (laughs) Great. Well, it's a real pleasure for me too, and for our listeners, I'm sure. I want to begin by asking you to tell us something about yourself because you've led a pretty adventurous professional life. Uh, At the same time, you said you weren't one of those boys swinging a butterfly net around and collecting butterflies. Yeah, I got into this. Well, I got into the butterflies just after I was an undergraduate. When I was heading into into college, well, I really had, looking back, not much idea what I was going to be doing. I wound around from engineering to economics and ended up finding a love for ecology and by the end of uh, my college, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to do ecology, and I wanted to study birds. And so I was going to head off to graduate school to study birds. But in between time, I had this chance to go to the tropics for a year to do ecology and conservation. Uh, and I went to northern Guatemala. I mean, you know, what, what? would be better as just after undergraduate to go out to the tropics. And I was um, brought there and I didn't really think about what I was doing until I arrived and turned out I was studying butterflies and I was left in the woods for two years, it turns out, with three things, a tent, a bike to get around in the trails in the forest and a butterfly net. And so that was where I really launched into my study of and love of butterflies. Well, you stuck with flying things. I did stick with flying things. Yeah, pretty flying things, I guess. The advantage of butterflies, with studies of birds, you get up before dawn because that's when birds are most active, like right before the sun rises. Um, that is early mornings. And the great thing about butterflies is they fly kind of at midday. And so... Timing's a little better, <laughs> but no, I've loved, I, lo- I have loved studying butterflies. They're more diverse than, they're about as diverse as birds, but um, in areas you can see many different species and uh, they have important roles in their ecosystems. So yeah, it was, it was, you know, I, just to give you a sense when I got involved in Guatemala, um, I was dropped there, I knew nothing about butterflies, and I was asked uh, to do one thing, to collect all butterflies that I could see. They knew I knew nothing, so I wasn't gonna be the one identifying them. So I sent them back to experts, and it was, I think, it was about five years later that I got a paper written by one of these experts that told me that, that I had caught 530 different butterfly species. And so that really opened my eyes to, well, the diversity of life out there and the possibilities to study the ecology and conservation of butterflies. And I got one other story about my work in Guatemala. Um, I 
not all, about a year after I knew that I had caught 500 butterfly over 500 butterfly species, I learned that I had captured five species new to science. And um, one that really stood out to me was a butterfly that was not just a new species, but a new genus of butterfly. And so a new genus, you know, what is that? Like an ostrich is a species within its own genus. And, um, and so I was um, studying the ostrich of the butterfly world. And here I am thinking, this butterfly, what is it going to be named? Like, that's what we're all wondering when we have a new thing. What is it going to be named? It must be one of those butterflies that has the coolest name in the world. And just to give a sense to what this butterfly looks like, well, it's small and brown. There are a lot, a lot of butterflies are small and, and brown. We think of the pretty flying things like monarchs. But um, so there's a small brown butterfly. And I'm reading about the description of the butterfly, why it's new. And I'm sitting on my edge of the seat because at the end of the article is the name of the butterfly. I get to the end. And the name, I'm not kidding you, was Inglorious Mediocris. And so I guess that was like the coolest name in science, but not for the reasons I had been thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great name. Um, so before I go on, I just want to ask, you said you collected something like 530 species of butterflies. How many species are there in the world? Do we know? Yeah, we do. There's about 19,000 butterfly species. And many of them have been identified, but then we have to make give some leeway to the butterflies that have not like in glorious mediocris i mean if here if i'm catching a new genus and species um well there's of course others out there and so between what we know what are sitting in museums and what we don't yeah we think about nineteen thousand. so a good number yes and the ones you focus on you've chosen just five really to focus on this book uh, you bring in a couple others as well but the five rarest butterfly species. What brought you to write The Last Butterflies? Yeah, well, what brought me to write it was to, uh, you, you mentioned I studied five rare butterfly species. And what I found is that the number of people interested in each of the individual butterfly species I study is maybe 25. Like the people that have real clear interest in well, conserving and managing the land for the butterfly and then the, you know, few other kind of butterfly experts that are out there. And what I realized is that, you know, so maybe each one of these butterfly species just has a few people interested, but the few butterfly species I study have bigger lessons and um, the bigger lessons extend to, well, the rare butterflies, the super rare butterflies that are out there. And even beyond that, because now we know that, you know, it's not just the rare butterflies that are declining, but well, you, you hear now in the media terms like insect apocalypse, but that speaks to a bigger trend. I mean, a really a frightening one that, you know, it's not just the rare butterflies that are in trouble, but many butterflies, many insects. And so, you know, what could we learn from the rare butterflies that I study that apply to other rare butterflies, other rare species, and to um, the butterflies or insects that are on our earth. And so that was my goal to try to draw larger lessons. But, and um, well, for me, it was, yeah, a nice opportunity to bring together ideas and to be a voice for conservation that, well, really got me into studying butterflies in the first place. Yeah, and it seems like a good way to draw people in because even though, as you say, very few people may know about these individual species of rare butterflies, uh, butterflies are beautiful and people in general appreciate when they see a rare butterfly. So, yeah, it's oh, interesting. Yeah, like these, I mean, when I ask people what butterflies they know, well, almost every person names one butterfly. And you know, you could guess what it is. Can I guess is. the monarch? Yes, the monarch. Everybody can, you know, name the monarch. And there's a reason for that. I mean, just even if we knew nothing else about its biology, it's big, orange. It's one of the biggest butterflies in North America. In fact, I think the biggest. Um, so it's, you know, flying, flashy, like we see it 
flying across the landscape. And then when you factor in this other feature of this, its biology, this incredible migration, 3,000 miles from more or less where I'm sitting to the middle of Mexico, well, it makes sense that that's um, the you know charismatic species for the butterflies. And the butterflies that I study, well, they're smaller, they're not, you know, so they're harder to see, they're less uh, showy. And when I say harder to see, even if there were many of them, they'd be harder to see because they're small and not, not as flashy. But then, you know, the butterflies that I work with number in the few tens of thousands, the thousands or the hundreds. Like there's so few out there, even if you tried, um, it'd be hard to find them. Yeah. So you've structured the book in uh, order of butterflies from, I guess, the, the least rarest <laughs> to the rarest, <laughs> rarest. Yes. And yeah. Um, and a theme throughout the book is how do we know which species are the, how do we know which species are the rarest? Uh, and you describe different ways of quantifying that. And I have to say the description that most impressed me was where you say that if you held the entire adult population of the Shao swallowtail, and that's the one that you determined to be the rarest, rarest. Yes. If you held the entire adult population in your hand, it would weigh about six ounces. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's phenomenally small. I mean, um, even Shao swallowtail, well, there's other reasons why it's the rarest, but the number that if you went and count all the adult butterflies right now, you might find, I mean, all, if you could just see everyone on the face of the earth, well, the number would be around 300 or 400. And and so somebody out there might think, oh, three or 400 individual butterflies. Like maybe that's not such a small number, but it is, I mean, just incredibly small for the reason you said. I mean, a few ounces is their weight. I mean, the amount of like if you kind of squish them down into your hand, it would just be a little golf ball or something, um, really small, smaller than that. And so, um, I mean, it's, it's not comparable to the size of one bird or think about one like charismatic rare species that you think about, I don't know, a panda bear or some other thing. I mean, it's just the amount of, um, of the butterfly on the face of the earth is tiny. And there's other, yeah, you brought up, you know, how could we determine what is the rarest? Like maybe it's the number as we're talking about now, but there's other ways that we could measure. Like maybe it, a butterfly occupies a tiny area, like the area of um, a football field or, or a city block, you know, just a tiny area. And well, it turns out that most of the butterflies that I'm talking about do also occupy those small areas, not all of them. Uh, but I just decided to stick with the number of butterflies as my measure because it was a common measure and it's something I could get information for across all the species in this book. And I could, you know, these rare butterflies have been studied or tracked down by people, by scientists, by butterfly collectors. And so you know, we could get a reasonably good idea across the butterfly world. Yeah. And you mentioned the example of, let's say there were 300 individual adults, but one of the things with butterflies is that for one thing, they don't live very long. Yeah. So you've got this short lived. And so you're always dependent on the next generation, right? And the next oh, generation. I hate that. Yes. And they're so very sensitive, which you go into when you talk about particularly trying to raise them in captivity or the different challenges that occur in the environment, there are so many places in the life cycle where things could go drastically wrong for the butterflies. Yeah, um, I mean, just for, to, I mean, what one thing that keeps me up at night, especially when the adults are about to start, start flying is how many adults will there be this year? Because a lot could happen to those few caterpillars that you know, make those adults in the end, that can happen between the butterfly generations, and especially when that butterfly generation goes from the fall, you know, late fall one year to the early spring the next year. You know, what what happened to those butterflies and the caterpillars in winter? And will we, <laughs> will we start off a new season seeing, well, seeing a similar number of butterflies or, you know, more, but 
more butterflies, that's the optimistic case, or less? Will those butterflies be there? And there have been cases, I've of course not seen a butterfly go extinct, but I've seen whole populations lost from one year to the next. And so even that, just the loss of a single population, because there's so few of these butterflies, the you know, loss of a single population is huge. And so, yeah, I have, have, you know, woken up to the start of the butterfly season to, to find butterflies missing. Hmm. Uh, one of those things, it, keep, it does, it keeps me up at night during the, you know, when we're out there tracking the butterfly populations. Yes, I imagine you're one of the few people in the world losing sleep over butterfly populations, but more of us probably should be. Yeah, we, that is true. That is true. But you know what? Honestly, more and more people are worried about it. Um, I will say that um, the, uh, you know, so I, I'm one of the few people worrying about each of these individual rare butterflies, but it's amazing how many people come to me and will say things like, um, you know, I, I've been out in my yard this summer and I see, I'm seeing less butterflies. Is there something going wrong? And if you would, when that kind of inter interaction happened with me five, 10 years ago, I'd nod my head, but in the back of my mind think, ah, you know, from one year to the next, butterflies can go up and down and maybe somebody went out on a cooler, cloudier day or a hotter, sunny day or whatever. And so I really shrugged it off. And now I don't think that's right. I think what people are observing in their yards in nature is true, that butterflies are declining just in general. Um, not every butterfly species, but the, the trend is downward. Hmm. And you structured the book, you devote a chapter to each one of the rare species. So right in the middle, I guess the middle rarest, uh, was the most compelling butterfly to me was the St. Francis Seder. And this is the butterfly that has its fate entwined with the U.S. Army, specifically its artillery ranges in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Um, it's not the showiest butterfly. You mentioned small brown butterflies, and it's one of those small browns. But it has a really fascinating story from its discovery by someone who turned out to be a real rogue in the world of lepidopterists. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that goes back even further. Um, so, I, you know, the St. Francis Seder holds a special place in my heart because it's what got me into studying the conservation of the rarest butterflies in the world. It was the start for me, and that was 20 years ago. And I... When I got involved with it, I had other motivations. I, um, before that, for the previous 10 years, I'd worked on understanding why, how does habitat loss affect the um, populations of species, diversity of species. And so I'd created these big experiments to understand that and to investigate the role of well, what you brought up right in the introduction, landscape corridors. And so this idea that we could create superhighways for plants and animals, and then that would help to preserve their populations, their diversity across the landscape. But in the 10 years prior to St. Francis Seder, I always worked with common species. And so I was testing this conservation idea, but it was really tied to basic, basic, more conceptual biology. And so I thought, ah, maybe I can put these ideas to the test with a species of conservation interest. And so that thought was in the back of my mind when some managers, um, resource managers in charge of St. Francis Seder called me and asked if I'd get involved because I knew something about butterflies. And it turned out this was the perfect um, study species for me because it lives in populations on along streams and so the populations are in wet meadows that are fairly small. And then there's kind of a, um, I don't know, a necklace of them going up and down streams. And so those stream, uh, streams and the habitat around them make a corridor. It was the perfect system for me. Um, well, I'm still working on that question 20 years later. I'm actually thinking I can finally understand that. But nonetheless, it got me enmeshed in... Um, you know, just completely tied to this 
rare butterfly and its conservation. Now, I, I should step back a bit because when I got involved with this butterfly, well, there was almost nothing known about it, except that the butterfly was discovered in 1983. So not that long before I started work on it. And um, it, it's got this crazy story. So you said already that this butterfly is found on an army installation. So it's found at Fort Bragg uh, uh, in Southern North Carolina, the only place in the world you can find it. And um, this uh, soldier was training in, um, at Fort Bragg and in training, it took soldiers in, they were working on navigation. It took them through wetlands and so these swampy areas that this butterfly lives in. And it turns out this person was a butterfly collector as a kid. So, I mean, I still imagine, you know, him walking through this, this wetland and seeing something that, well, dang, it looks different. And so that was the start. Um, the butterfly was discovered. There was a publication announcing its arrival to the kind of world and, and knowledge of it. And... Then, you know, so going forward from there, now this butterfly is known to be at the Army installation. The person who discovered it later got involved in, um, uh, you know, a really sad um, enterprise, which was collecting rare butterflies and collecting them. So now imagine you have a rare butterfly that's numbering in the hundreds or the thousands, and then you know, as a collector, collecting, collecting, and they, um, the rarer the butterfly, the more valuable it is in a collection. And so this person was, was later indicted for collecting butterflies that was um, prohibited by law, but collecting them, plotting their extinction so that they would have the specimens of these butterflies in their collection. And by the way, the, the collecting was not of the St. Francis Seder that was the target of the investigation because the St. Francis Seder didn't have the legal protection by listed, being listed as an endangered species under the Endangered Species Act. So there are two somewhat separate stories, but because of this, the person tied to the discovery and then the indictment, the St. Francis Seder was listed in an emergency listing as an endangered species with the threat of habitat loss, but also the threat that collectors might circle in and cause the extinction of the butterfly. That's fascinating. Well, I guess I would linger on this St. Francis Seder, but I'm just going to leap to another question I had because it ties in, which is, uh, so there are a number of threats to these rare butterflies, including habitat loss and climate change. But the one that your average American would probably think of first is overzealous or, or black market collectors, because sometimes, as with this this guy with the St. Francis Seder, it turns into a splashy news story. Uh, but how big of a threat is collecting compared to the other challenges? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I'm glad you asked because um, I agree that you know that can get into the headlines, but the truth of the matter is butterfly collecting isn't causing extinctions. I mean, there's this one extraordinary, unique case that I mentioned, but um, there is a place for collecting and uh, we could talk about that later. I mean, collecting is important in science, but also in education. I just think of young kids out there with butterfly nets looking for um, new, new types of butterflies, which exposes them to the variety of life. I mean, compared to the, the devastation we people are causing to butterflies by loss of their habitat, um, you know, collecting is a drop in the bucket, really less than a drop in the bucket. It's not, not so important. Um, the thing that is surprising, so, so I think everybody understands that loss of habitat is causing the loss of butterflies, not just butterflies, but other species. And, you know, you know, we can imagine the landscape being lost to, to fields, farms, urbanization, industry. I mean, these are, we're talking about huge areas being taken under huge natural areas. And so then uh, nature 
nature species are kind of stuck eking out, you know, survival on the places that are left. But so that's, you know, that's one target for conservation is to draw in the lands or restore the lands that are have been lost to these species that have driven them to the edge of extinction for the butterflies. But there's another one, the one that I like to, the issue I like to point to that I think people, well, it, it becomes shocking um, is that we're not talking about just habitat being lost, like plowed under and covered with asphalt. Um, it's not as extreme as that. There are subtle ways that habitat can be lost. And a key way across the butterflies is loss of natural disturbances that benefit the butterfly's habitat. And so what do I mean? So what, what kind of natural disturbances am I talking about? A common one is fire. So in nature, fire frequently burned across many landscapes. And um, that's, that, was an, that is an important cycle in maintaining natural habitats. And let me step back and say that when I say fire, I'm not thinking of catastrophic fires that make the news and that you know gets ingrained in people's minds. Um, we're talking about natural fires that can ha could you know historically have happened frequently and low in at low intensity, and that are broken up by natural features of the landscape. Like I don't know, an obvious one would be wetlands and rivers providing a break in the spread of a fire. But these fires are turn out to often be critical in um, the the um, populations of the rarest butterflies, and so. You know, why would that be? I can give a bunch of examples, but, you know, think of where you see butterflies. You often see them in open, kind of grassy, grassland-type areas where they're at flowers. And there are some places that, you know, stay in that habitat, you know, no matter what, ha you know, just they stay in it on and on. But in many places, there's a natural process of plant succession where, grasslands grow to shrublands and shrublands grow to forest. And so the butterflies that depend on the grasslands, well, once you get to shrubland and forest, it excludes the food plant for the caterpillars. It causes the loss of the butterfly. And I can, I mean, there's, there's many examples of this, but I'll give you one extreme example. And it comes back to this butterfly, the St. Francis Seder that lives on the army base. And I told you it lives on an army base. Um, but it really, for all intent and purposes, lives in one small part of the military base, which is in the artillery ranges. And, you know, when I heard this, I thought, how can this place, what, you know, without walking into it, seems like one of the most destructive environments on Earth. How can it be the home to this rare species? And so I... Um, well, I, I have been really lucky in my collaboration with the Army to be able to go into these artillery ranges to look for the butterflies. Um, it's really a special case, and I'm very thankful for it. And when I first walked in, I thought, oh, man, I'm just going to walk into a moonscape, this area of devastation and destruction. And I, I had it all wrong, and... There's, I mean, one obvious reason I had it wrong is that the army was not going to let me walk around in the places where the bombs land because that could be a moonscape and it would also be a dangerous place. But the way to think about an artillery range is that there's, I think about it like a donut, the hole in the middle is the places where the artillery lands and that, yes, could be a, um, a moonscape. But then the donut around it um, well, there's not artillery dropping. It's kind of a buffer. But the artillery starts fires, and those fires burn through the area that I'm calling the donut. And so when I walked into the landscape, I saw environments like, well, I'd never, I've never, never, had never, similar, I've never seen similar habitats outside. They should have been the same habitats, but they were not. These were open, beautiful landscapes as I walked across them. Well, I really felt like I was in the type of environment I would have been in, you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago. 
And as I walked to where the rare butterflies are, they're in these these open wetlands. I walked down. I didn't just look for rare butterflies. I saw um, rare plants. I saw things like Venus flytraps or cool fields of pitcher plants. Um, I saw rare birds. Um, red cockaded woodpecker is a rare species. And so I saw these environments that were loaded with a diversity that you just couldn't find elsewhere. And then I walked down into these wetlands and like immediately I see the endangered St. Francis Seder. In fact, see healthy populations of them. And so, you know, the obvious question is, well, why is it? Why are the butterflies in this, um, in these artillery ranges? And it turns out that the butterflies depend on, on fires. So these open grassy wetlands well, very quickly, this is in North Carolina, so plants are very productive. Those grassy wetlands turn to shrublands and forest and will cause the butterflies to be lost. And that's what's happening outside the artillery ranges. But inside, the artillery starts fires, and those fires burn across the landscape. And so the, um, the fires set by artillery are doing a better job of replicating what would have happened in the natural environment than people can do outside even when we do um, controlled burning which we do outside outside of the artillery ranges so the crazy thing is that the um, well these these places that seem like areas of heavy destruction turn out to be some of the most beautiful places on earth and they're beautiful well, from my eye, but also from the perspective of the St. Francis Seder. That's amazing. And I think it speaks to the unintended consequences that are, you know, so much of human behavior has unintended consequences when it comes to wildlife and ecology. And some of the things that we've been doing have been, in, in fact, you mentioned that some of the things that we've been doing in order to, or thinking that we're protecting species have been harming them. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, well, I, I can say that in regard to my own life as a biologist. So when I got involved with uh, St. Francis Seder, um, there were just a few populations left and now I'm thinking about them outside the artillery ranges. And that's what I was charged with doing science and conservation for. And I thought, here I am, I'm the, like the biologist, the, the um, scientists, the conservationists, the butterflies are in good hands. And so I was out there, my lab is tracking the populations of these butterflies and they seem to be doing well for a few years. And then after about five years, one population of butterflies, it blinked out. And then the next year, another did. And then the next year, another. To the point where I might've started working with eight populations and I was down to one left. I was failing. And so I had to sort of step back. I mean, it was really with anguish and I was well frightened that I was going to be the person on watch when these butterflies went extinct. And so I had to really step back and think, what can I do? How do I change course to see this butterfly uh, persist? And that's when I had it was about that time where I had a chance to go into these artillery ranges and realize the importance of disturbance. And so the approach I had taken before was to have a hands-off approach. Nature had kept these butterflies going and I was just gonna let nature take its course. But nature taking its course in my eye was to keep out disturbances by people or any other disturbances that would harm butterflies. And it turned out that, well, the disturbances I was preventing were exactly the ones that are needed to keep the butterfly populations going. And so um, the um, I said these butterflies live in open grassy wetlands and the, um, the, they're maintained open and grassy in part by the fires that burn out the trees and shrubs and also by beaver that create dams. And when they abandon their dams, they create a wetland that they're, the butterflies um, food plants, the caterpillars food plants can grow in. Now we could not easily, um, we could not easily 
set fires in these landscapes. And so we did the next best thing is that we kind of replicated the role of beaver. So, and I have a, a lab full of beavers. They, um, we learned how to create dams with a tool. It's the second best tool in my toolkit after a butterfly net, and it's called an aqua dam. And the aqua dam is essentially an inner tube, but a big one, like a hundred feet long and two feet high that you roll out into a line and then you fill it with water to create a dam and it, well, makes a, a wetland behind it. And then we also did the other thing that a fire or beaver would do, which is to cut out the trees that are harmful to the butterflies. And now we've seen restoration succeed and the butterfly populations are growing. We feel like we have a handle on the restoration. But the kind of circling back to your point about doing the wrong thing, you know, I went from doing the wrong thing, which is keeping a hands-off approach to doing what turns out to be the right thing by disturbing the butterfly's habitat through flooding or fire. And when I was taking the hands-off approach, I was doing it because I didn't want to harm the butterflies. But it turns out if we don't do anything, then we're harming the butterflies anyway because they'll be lost as the vegetation changes. And so the key thing I had to learn is that to keep the butterfly populations healthy in the end, in the immediate time, I had to be willing to kill some butterflies through disturbance, through natural disturbance, um, to save the butterfly populations anyway. It's still, I still find it hard to say that we have to kill butterflies to save butterflies, but it's critically important. And that's true. What's, you know, you asked me earlier why I wrote this book or what I, what I got out of it. I'm telling you about one case with the St. Francis Seder butterfly, but that comes up again and again and again. We have to be willing to create disturbances, disturbances that might kill butterflies in the short term, but will save them in the long term. And that happens in many ways um, through fire. There's many other butterflies that need fire to regenerate their habitat. But the case I love most of all is the case of the large blue butterfly in, um, in the um, United Kingdom. So the large blue butterfly was declining, declining, declining. And people, scientists, entomologists, thought it was going extinct starting, I don't know, 150 years ago. And the butterfly population got, got, went down, down, down. And it ultimately did go extinct. But as it went extinct, people learned why it went extinct. So as this butterfly was declining, um, it lives in these grasslands and its food plant is a thyme that grows in grasslands. Um, people realized they were worried. Like there were these grasslands, the grasslands were being lost by um, urbanization, by farming or whatever. And they were potentially being lost by disturbances that were happening in the grassland. And the disturbances were caused by cows that were grazing on the landscape. So what conservationists did was they set up erected fences around the butterfly's habitat. And it was to keep cows out and it was to keep butterfly collectors out. But they still saw the butterfly decline, decline, decline. It ultimately went extinct. Now, there's another curious part to this butterfly. Um, the butterfly lives need lives with and needs ants and it to many people it seems i don't know surprising that butterfly like how do butterflies or why do butterflies need ants and so they live ants and some butterflies live in this mutualism where um, the ants provide protection for the caterpillars and then the caterpillars secrete a sugary substance called honeydew that the ants can feed on and that happens in a lot of butterflies, but with this butterfly, the large blue, uh, ants did a different thing. They, it, when the caterpillars were, I don't know, about through half their time as caterpillars, they dropped from their plant and the ants would pull them away and drag them underground where the ants would feed on the ant, I'm sorry, the um, butterflies would feed on the ant larva and then they would grow and form a chrysalis and then emerge as an adult. And so conservationists knew this, that the butterfly needed the ant 
And so they thought they were conserving them in the places the ants were. But what they didn't know is what type of ant, what species of ant it was. There's a whole bunch of different red ants and a different species of red ants. And conservationists thought, well, it's one of these things. These ants are everywhere. So they fenced the um, fenced off the habitats for the butterflies to keep the cows out. They thought there were the plants there. They thought there were the ants there. But it turned out that one species of these red ants was important, was the only one that took the butterflies underground. And these ants, uh, it still amazes me, the ants live in grasslands where the grasses are about an inch high. And so these grasses are growing, right? And so once the size of the grasses gets above an inch, the, um, the ants lost then the butterflies are lost. And so you can ask, well, what, I mean, what keeps grasses one inch high? Um, and, and the answer is, well, what's the disturbance? It's caused by herbivores, things that eat plants. And naturally the things that eat, would have eaten plants were rabbits, but the rabbits had been wiped off the landscape. And that's another story. But so then something had to replace the rabbits. And what was that? Well, it turned out it was those cows that people were fencing out of the landscape. And so it was, again, this case where people were doing what they thought was in the best interest of the butterfly, fencing them off from butterfly collectors and from cows. And in fact, they were doing the worst thing and causing these butterflies to be lost. And so that case comes up over and over again, whether, you know, grazing is replaced by cows, whether fire is replaced by um by artillery, um, you know, the, the um, disturbances needed by butterflies, the disturbances that might kill some butterflies are important to keep the butterflies surviving. Yeah, and I think this should really give us as a species a great deal of humility because you said uh, the British biologists had researched and they'd found out about the ant uh, commensalism if that's the right word, which is something that, um, you know, it's, it's really complex and you would think, bravo, they've discovered this amazing connection. And yet ecology is so tenuous and so incredibly complex. It seems like when you describe things we've learned, then there's something else that we didn't know. So, oh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I, I mean, one thing I've learned across the red butterflies is, you know, we think like, Everybody out there, we all think that how complicated is a butterfly? A butterfly as a caterpillar eats a plant. It grows up into from a caterpillar to a chrysalis and then an adult. And then what does an adult do? It eats nectar from flowers and it lays eggs, it dies, and then the cycle continues. And so like if I come back to the monarch example. Well, people who think a little bit about monarchs think about the food it eats, which is milkweed. And then, you know, you tie those two things together. But inevitably, in every case, there's complicated aspects of biology, of the biology of the butterflies that is critical to understand how to conserve them. And so, uh, this, uh, I don't know, maybe this should be self-evident, but here I am 20 years into studying the St. Francis Seder butterfly. And every year we learn some crucial new piece to keep the butterfly um, from going extinct. And I think that lesson just comes back over and over again. Yeah. So one of the things, uh, and you talk about different methods of conservation. And one thing that you mentioned rather reluctantly, I would say, is called managed relocation. Hmm. Yeah. Why are you so reluctant about that? And what is it? Okay, so what is managed relocation? So the idea is that we have to move rare butterflies to other places that also could be good habitat, but that help to expand the range of the butterfly. And so... One of the times, the probably the most frequent time, uh, area this is discussed and is in trying to move butterflies or other species to uh, areas that where the climate is going to be more suitable and especially as climate warms. And so 
as climate warms, the butterflies might not do well where they are, but maybe we could move them to places that are more like the habitats they evolved in. But with the rare butterflies, there's an additional part. So like, let me tell you about one species of the Miami blue butterfly. It used to occur throughout South Florida and its habitat was lost. The butterfly was, that was, you know, previously kind of like a weed of the butterfly world. It became less and less abundant and its um, habitats shrank to islands. So the Florida Keys and then to one set of islands that are off the Florida Keys. So if you think about the Keys going from um, from um, east to west, they're bigger towards the east and then they kind of trail off to Key West. And then if you go take a boat 20 miles from Key West, you get to these little tiny islands that are each the size of, I don't know, maybe a football field that might be um, being over generous. But that's the only, they were throughout South Florida. Now they're on these tiny islands. And they're these tiny exposed islands. They're exposed to intense hurricanes that are becoming more frequent. They're exposed to sea level rise. They're just like maybe a, a few feet above the ocean. And as sea level rises, it'll, it'll just take these islands away. So what's the goal in their conservation? It's to take them back to where they once were. And so the idea is to... Um, grow out the butterflies. Um, we, people at the University of Florida, know how to raise these butterflies in greenhouses in abundance, and then to release them into places that are where there's good habitat and then where we keep out threats of development or other threats that might harm the butterfly. So, so that's the obvious case, just putting butterflies back to where they once were. We might also as climate warms, have to think about moving again butterflies to places they've never been, but are there, that are cooler. And my reluctance is, well, there's many parts to my reluctance, but one is that um, by, well, first, it just is a hard thing to work out. Like for the butterfly to move, then the food plant has to be moved as well, for the food plant for the caterpillar. And then by moving the butterfly, we're absolving ourselves of conservation where the butterfly is now. So that's a general reluctance. I've come to the realization that, hey, we just, for the butterflies to survive, there are many places we're just going to have to make this happen. Um, I have a broader concern, which is that, you know, we might move a few butterflies and maybe they're the caterpillars food plants, but we're never going to move the whole ecological system that these butterflies were in. The plants the animals, the microorganisms. I mean, it's a complex process that we can never hope to achieve. So still, I have some reluctance, but I've seen the light and, and know that some of this relocation is going to have to happen. Yeah. And what about species? So this might not be the rarest species because they tend to be confined to a very small range, as you say. But what about other species that are more abundant making their own moves in light of climate change, or maybe I should say in the heat of climate change. Yeah. Can they successfully move to a, a cooler area, let's say? Well, that's what we're hoping. My lab has work on that right now, and it depends on um, how, in part, how connected the landscape is. They're not going to do it if the potential habitats are separated by, you know, miles and miles of urban areas or farm fields. But, Still, it's needed. We people in my lab have um, studied how the broader set of insects are declining, not just the rare species, but common species. And so one of my study students got a hold of a data set that covers the entire state of Ohio. And there's 20 years of data where data were collected by scientists and citizen scientists collected weekly for the last 20 years. And asked how those butterflies are doing and so with the whole butterfly um all the butterflies studied across all species it turns out that butterflies are declining and they're declining by two percent per year and two percent might not seem like a lot like two out of a hundred butterflies or whatever but two percent per year when added up over 20 years turns out a lot as a loss of a third of all butterflies and so that when i saw that i mean my jaw dropped but 
but now you're asking about individual species and we see species that among those um, all butterflies species are declining or that some are increasing and so about three times as many butterflies are declining as increasing but why are some increasing and there's an example of one butterfly the gem satyr that's at the very northern part of its range and its populations are increasing and so what might be happening is that as the temperature warms in the north it's actually becoming better for the butterfly and so it's improving in the state of ohio and has the chance to move even further north to um, increase its range that way as the hotter southern end becomes um, inhospitable well there's a lot uh, a lot to be concerned about with these butterflies um we've taken up a lot of your time nick um, but I do want to ask you one more question, which in fact is, uh, do you have a favorite species of butterfly? Uh, well, I, I will say that um, I have to, I, I have, uh, I can't say three favorites, but my favorite is not a rare butterfly. It's called the common buckeye. And lots of people, if you're, you know, if lots of people in especially Eastern North America can see this. Um, butterfly. But why is it my favorite? Well, you know, I did a dissertation, five-year process, and for the first two years, I studied one butterfly species that was going to be the subject of my dissertation. And the whole effort failed. And I had done all this work to create experimental landscape corridors to test their role as highways for this one butterfly species. And I thought, how am I going to dig myself out of this hole? And it turned out that the answer was to switch to other butterflies and especially the common buckeye. So I credit the common buckeye with resurrecting my, my dissertation and putting me on this track to study not just common butterflies, but the very rarest butterflies in the world. That's really funny. And, and the common buckeye is pretty common. It's pretty common. You can, I see it here in Michigan. I saw it in South Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina, um, yeah, it's a it's a common species, which is has its own benefits. Then people can get out there and see it. People, I especially think of kids that are learning about the diversity of life. Yeah, yeah, and let's hope that they continue to learn. And I, I really hope that people will read your book. Um, I can highly recommend it. It's it's very uh, fascinating, really. You know, each butterfly species is its own story, and. You know, they you can you can see each one of them as um, an individual with its own story, and so I think people will be just both fascinated by those stories, but also by the lessons of conservation that you draw, and just how difficult it is for us as humans to understand the complexity of life, uh, but how important that is too. Well, good. I hope I hope they enjoy the individual stories, but also see how there are bigger there are bigger messages for the broader whole and for conservation of biodiversity of, of butterflies and in general. Yeah. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Nick. I want to thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Rachel. I love talking about butterflies.